Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet partners with businesses, organizations, unions, and social democratic parties across the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies, and empower people to organize for change. And in 2021, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope, and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly center-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we go back overseas today. Um, There was obviously a little thing called the Georgia Senate runoffs that happened in early January in which the Democrats made history, defied odds, come from behind, you name it. It was historic uh, in which they elected uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff to the United States Senate, thus giving the Democrats control of both chambers of Congress for the foreseeable future under the Biden administration. And to help us break down that historic win, we're going to be joined by a very, very talented uh, organiser, Joan A. Wartell, who was the runoff director for the Democratic Party in Georgia. In It is her native state, uh, the Peach State, and she'll be coming on today's episode to basically talk about the whole Georgia runoff campaign and Georgia politics in general. So look out for that. We had a little bit of a problem with the audio at the start, but bear with us, it does get fixed uh, in the first sort of six or seven minutes. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to Socially Democratic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. And if you use Apple Podcast, please give us a rating and leave us a review on the Apple Podcast uh, app. And for all of the most recent updates, don't forget to follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a glorious Thursday afternoon here in uh, downtown Melbourne. Um, And I'm joined on the line from what I would now call the democratic stronghold of the great state of Georgia. Uh, She is the uh, runoff director for the Democrats in Georgia and is fresh off a very, very successful campaign uh, to uh, not only win two Senate seats in Georgia but also to assist the Democrats to regain control of the Senate as the incoming Biden administration begin their big task of restoring uh, democracy in the United States. Uh, Joan A. Wartell, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. It's great to be here. And congratulations as well. Um, I am sure that uh, we're going to obviously talk about the the Georgia runoff campaign in in, in detail, but um, you must be exhausted after the last however many months of campaigning. Yes, I am indeed exhausted. Uh, but today was uh, a breath of fresh air. So um, very uh, excited and, uh, you know, recovering, I will say, for the campaign trail. Uh, Martin Luther King spoke about the hurt and the hope. Uh, I want to quickly talk about the hurt and then I want to flip over to the hope, but the hurt being um, um, the events that occurred a couple of weeks ago in your nation's capital. Uh, There's nothing better than jagging a historic come from behind, nobody believed in us, election victory. 
Uh, and then to have that, what I love about that moment is to then do that lap of honor for a couple of weeks, just taking all the thank yous and plaudits for having that successful victory. Um, and that unfortunately was completely overshadowed by the next day, uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, that feels nice to say, a letter collective of his loyal supporters and white supremacists and right-wing nutjobs and QAnon conspiracy theorists and an insurrection on the nation's capital and the home of American democracy. What were your thoughts running through your mind the next morning after finishing an incredibly amazing election campaign to watch this madness unravel um, on uh, national television? Well, you summarized it nearly perfectly. You know, I, just like everyone, was, you know, flying high after this historic victory. Uh, it was really a victory for Georgians and for democracy to then have, not even 12 hours later, to have these events unfold in the nation's capital. And I, you know, being a native Georgian, but having spent a lot of time living very close to Capitol Hill, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing unfold at the Capitol. And it was it was like shock and horror glued to your TV. And so while this euphoric um, elation of winning an election and seeing the promise of what we could be as a nation, what we could accomplish together, to then see the absolute reverse of that, you know, the, the ugly underbelly of racism and um, white supremacy kind of rearing its head in that way and just bringing a cloud over our democracy for that moment, for that, that, that snapshot in time, you know, there was, there was just kind of this tug of war in my heart of being overjoyed at this victory, but then just having to confront once again, the, the ugliness um, that, um, that we saw in those events. And so, you know, I still grapple, I'm still grappling with that really, even now, um, just thinking about how those events changed for that moment. Um, you know, our democracy. So um, I will say that, you know, I'm still processing those things as juxtaposition to one another. Uh, I think it's one of the, 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 the weird norms, I guess, and it's, it's not normal. That's the weird th- word to use, but just the Trump presidency, you couldn't catch your breath because there was just every, I mean, from, a, from the standpoint of an Australian, you'd wake up every morning and jump on Twitter and think what insane things have happened overnight in the United States every day. Um, I think it's going to take time for folks, you know, in the United States and around the world to get used to hopefully just things returning back to normal in the United States and politics going on its usual way about just trying to deliver for people in their, in their communities and whatnot as opposed to the insanity that was the Trump administration. Let's flip over to then the hope because, you know, watching – I got up at 4 o'clock this morning like a lot of Australians would have and watched the inauguration of uh, President uh, Biden, wow, that's nice to say, and Vice President uh, Harris. Um, let's talk about the hope. What 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 was running through your mind watching uh, the inauguration today in the, in the nation's capital? Well, it was like a breath of fresh air. Um, it really was, and and it was so good to find um, less than just two weeks after that. Um, that violent attack on the Capitol to then see this historic moment happening. It just, it was, it was almost poetic in a sense, you know, you saw this, you felt this, this, this relief really um, that, as you said, that you've, you've never felt over the last four years, you were always holding your breath. You know, what, what thing was going to come out of the president's mouth? What, what seed of division that he was going to sow in communities? Um, What, what sort of crazy, you know, unhinged thing would he do 
um, in relation to our foreign uh, our foreign relations. And that is a really tough, it's a tough environment to live in. And I remember tweeting right after I saw, you know, President Biden take that oath to see the historic Kamala Harris taking her oath. I just remember tweeting, exhale. Hmm. I haven't been able to exhale for four years. And it was a moment that I needed, that people I know who are close to this work and, and do this work every day needed. But it was a moment that our nation needed to know that decency can be restored to the office of president. That was important to know. And I think that we all kind of took for granted that normalcy that comes with a steady hand of leadership, that almost predictability, but really it's just responsibility and leadership, Mm. right? Moral leadership um, was missing from the White House for all of those years. So I am able to exhale, to breathe deeply, to hope again, because of what I've seen today. And so it's really a great feeling. So before we talk about the runoff campaign itself, I'm wondering if you could give our Australian audience some context about the state of Georgia and the long-term okay. project that was going into turning Georgia um, blue. Um, I um, I was in Atlanta in 2016 just doing – on a sort of a – road trip with some mates for the presidential campaign. And when I was there, I got a real sense that there was a real sort of strong artsy vibe going on in that city. Um, And even sort of noticing watching a lot of US TV shows, everything these days seems to be made in in Atlanta, Georgia. One of my favorite shows the last 10 years is Atlanta. Um, And listening to, um, uh, I think it was a podcast with James Carville and Paul Begala, they were talking about, um, you know, the changing demographics of places like uh, Gwinnett County, uh, it's become one of the most racially diverse counties in the United States. Uh, Cobb County, which was long regarded as a you know a Republican stronghold, has changed dramatically over the last um, you know four, four or five years. What's going on in in Atlanta, and what's going on in Georgia, generally speaking, that is seeing this sort of this change, and it's becoming a uh, a, a different looking state than it was say 10, 15 years ago. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It is a changing demographic in the state. Um, particularly in Atlanta, which we know as Fulton County, and then what we call these collar counties around Atlanta, so these suburban counties, Cobb County that you mentioned, which is actually my my hometown, it's my home turf, uh, from Cobb County, um, Gwinnett County, which as you mentioned is the most racially one of the most racially diverse places in the state. What you're seeing is there are increasing numbers of um, of uh, people of color. Um, really inhabiting those suburban areas and creating what I would say is a more progressive um, foundation for uh, for Democrats to really be able to compete there. Um, I will also say that the the youth demographics is also helpful. You know, those, those areas are getting a bit younger as well. And so I would say that that is really why, as Democrats, we've been able to compete in um, in those counties, but you know, demographics for all that they they serve us, they are not destiny, um, and so it still takes organizing on the ground, um, doing that long term voter outreach and engagement. That has really been the story of how Georgia turned blue, and this work began over a decade ago. Um, I remember being a young organizer in the state um, in two thousand eight, two thousand ten, um, and seeing 
um, you know, the state beginning to change, but us not having invested the time, um, the resources, and really building the bench of talent and candidates to really compete there. So we saw that people like Stacey Abrams, uh, who is one of my old bosses from 2010, um, really take an interest in investing in the state. And by that, I mean registering voters, um, making sure that they were running long-term voter engagement, voter participation um, campaigns to talk to people about the importance of turning out to vote, um, to invest in the smaller races so that we could see um, more Democrats start to create this muscle memory of voting. And then we see, you know, great candidates um, coming on the board, like Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial race. So it really takes that long-term momentum and voter engagement, and then you create that kind of perfect storm of being able to compete um, statewide. And we saw how so close that Stacey Abrams came to winning. And then, you know, she didn't kind of take all of her toys and go home. She saw the opportunity to continue to invest in not only, um, you know, um, the census and making sure that folks were were participating, but then also to continue to register voters um, despite voter suppression efforts in the state. And so I think that's the reason why in 2020, we saw the state turn blue because of that long-term investment. So when states say, you know, in the South say, how can we replicate the successes in Georgia? You know, I say, how much time you had? You, you got 10 years? Because it really does take a long time to see that momentum um, come to fruition. So um, that is the story of Georgia. You know, we are a state that's increasingly diverse, but we've also now been in a place to be competitive with the amount of resources and organizing infrastructure that we have in place. And so now we see, you know, Reverend Warnock and um, John Ossoff, who John Ossoff's also one of my former bosses, um, now in the Senate. And so um, that is our story, but it is definitely one of intentional investment over a long period of time. You mentioned voter suppression uh, in your remarks there. It's something that some of us may not be very familiar with in Australia, largely because our democratic system is compulsory voting. Yep. Um, what type of tactics um, do uh, Republicans deploy with voter suppression and how have you sought to get around those in Georgia? Yeah. So I think, you know, voter suppression is one of the, the darkest parts of um, of our history as a state. Um, and what is most shameful about voter suppression is that it has been, it and its tactics and its strategy has been perpetrated at the highest levels of government in our state. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, there has been a systematic um, effort to, to reduce access to voting and particularly communities of color across our state. That is everything from purging folks from the voter rolls, which if you're not familiar with that process, it's that if someone hasn't voted in maybe the last two elections, it is assumed that they are an inactive voter. And so they are purged from the rolls and then have to re-register um, to vote. And not a lot of times voters don't even know that. They aren't even aware until they go and vote. So that's thing number one. Um, Brian Kemp, our current governor in Georgia, was one of what I call the architects of voter suppression. He oversaw a massive purge of voters um, in the run-up to his own election <laughs> as governor and then oversaw the Secretary of State's office while also running for governor. I mean, put that together, it just boggles your mind. Um, you also saw restrictions to early voting, um, which is one of the tactics that um, many Georgia voters take advantage of. Uh, advanced voting avoids lines. 
It makes voting more convenient for working families. Um, a lot of the restricted access to sites and hours made it so people who traditionally maybe had access to an early voting site aren't able to vote and are forced to vote on election day. And we all know that 12 hours to vote if you've got a job, if you've got kids, is not enough time. Um, so that's tactic number two. Um, and then also vote by mail um, processing times. Um, a lot of our systems of voting and election administration are historically underfunded in this state. There has not been intentional resource um, investment. And that means everything from there not being enough voting machines at certain sites where they know there's a lot of high traffic, which creates lines, which creates voter suppression, and then also um, understaffing workers so that states aren't or counties aren't able to process registrations and vote by mail applications and vote by mail ballots in a, in a quick manner, which causes people to, you know, to panic if you think you have voted by mail and, you know, you're still in, and you have no evidence of that when you go to search online, then, you know, it's going to create this kind of mistrust in the process. So there are a number of things that have been done both over time and even in this most recent election to essentially suppress um, black and brown votes in particular. And so some of the things that are being done to combat that, um, Stacey Abrams, again, I have to shout her out, she's done some heroic work in this space. Um, the founding uh, of an organization called Fair Fight Action pursues both public awareness and advocacy around these restrictions because public pressure does work in a lot of these cases where counties have discretion over opening sites, uh, puts public pressure on them. And then also, um, uh, pursues legislation or, or litigation where litigation is necessary because a lot of times these counties don't do things willingly. And so where that is um, necessary, having resources for litigation is a really important part of their strategy as well. So those things taken together has combated a lot of that, um, but there's still so much work to do in our state. Looking at the, uh, the general election, um, yep. where did Georgia rank um, um, on the I guess the priorities uh, for the the Biden campaign and for the DNC. So, I mean, you sort of look at um, states like Ohio and Florida, which had previously been in the in in the Democratic column. Uh, Obama, President Obama, won it in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. Um, was Georgia seen as a long shot, or was it legitimately this is something that we can actually win, and we're seriously going to put resources into this campaign? Well, those of us who've organized here and love this state always believe that we can win, right? But a lot of times getting the, the resources from national campaigns um, is a matter of whether it's viewed as a competitive state. And that is a number of different factors go into those sorts of calculations. Have we won the state, you know, before and prior to this election cycle, we hadn't won the state since Bill Clinton. So there would be reason to potentially be skeptical. But I think we knew that if we had enough resource investment and can put enough organizers on the ground and could invest in um, the infrastructure that you need to be competitive, that we could do it. So while um, I won't say it was a top priority by any means uh, of the Biden campaign, they did put some resources here. So they did have some, some organizing staff, some leadership, um, but it was not at all at the scale that um, we saw for the runoff election. Um, and, you know, different, different campaigns pursue different strategies, but I think we always knew that if given more that Georgia could show up in a, in a stronger way when it came to the numbers. And if you look at even 2016, there were states where we were actually, our turnout in 2016 was actually stronger than a lot of these states that had been 
better resource like the Ohio's of the world where closer markets in Georgia than Ohio, right? And so, you know, we say to ourselves, you know, we have to continue making the case to get investment and Stacey and others um, have been real advocates there. But when we saw that investment, you know, going into the runoff election or for the general election, even with not having a, a lot of resources, they were able to turn the state blue. I think there was a lot of national momentum there, but there was a lot of momentum in state that people who had been working for a long time made this happen. And so that victory definitely was uh, was hard fought and and uh, and was was cherished. And then when we got to the runoff election, our biggest challenge was scaling up the amount of organizing infrastructure that we had now that we had additional resources. So we went from, you know, less than 100 organizers to nearly 300 organizers, mm-hmm. you know, roughly. Um, we we scaled the largest in-person organizing apparatus in Georgia's history. Never had there been that many organizers on the ground. And so we saw what, what could happen. We knew that we couldn't do it without the amount of resources and the time that we had. We also had a pandemic, oh, by the way, and then we also had three major holidays. So getting people to vote uh, when you've got Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's right in the middle of your timetable required the resources that we ended up having. So we were very fortunate. Um, I'll come to that question in a moment about fatigue. Um, but before we do, I just I am interested in uh, the strategy with uh, the two Democratic candidates running in the two Senate races in the general. Was there a view that there was a potential of outright victory for those two candidates in the general? Or was it a case of let's just try, if we can get them into a runoff in January, then that would be, that would be a great result. How, how optimistic were you guys? Well, I will say not having been um, a, a part of the initial thinking, kind of going into the runoff, I, I was kind of at the tail end of like, we knew the runoff would be a potential. Um, I was kind of a part of that phase of the the deliberation. So I would say that we knew um, that we could compete in the 2020 cycle. So we knew that that was, that was going to mean that we could put John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnock in a really strong position. Um, they did pretty close to election day start thinking because of the polling that we likely could be in a runoff scenario. So they were they were exploring that as an option that would be on the table. So they weren't caught flat-footed, as we say, I guess, the terminology is like they caught. They weren't caught by surprise. I'll use a term that makes uh, more sense. But um, they weren't caught completely by surprise. I think they knew based on the polling that they were seeing that it could happen. And so when we got to that place, um, and also Raphael Warnock was in a primary because of the way that 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 um, that election seat um, was held because it was a special election. And so he was not formally the candidate until like he got to the runoff. But John Ossoff was already. Um, you know, the candidate based on the way that his election was run. So we we made quick moves once we realized there was a runoff scenario and that's how we were able to scale so quickly. Um, so you had the election in November. Um, Biden wins Georgia by just under 12,000 votes um, and you have this runoff. Um, sidebar, explain the histrionics of why the state of Georgia and your electoral election laws have runoffs. Um, so runoff elections, um, so a little bit about the, uh, well, so this was a very unique situation that we were in for having two, um, U.S. Senate seats up at the same time. Um, typically doesn't happen, you know, for all the reasons they're usually sequenced in between election cycles. So 
Georgia having a runoff election, we we knew would be a like we knew would be a possibility just based on um, the fact that um, we knew that the candidate field, the number of candidates that were running, um, that there was likelihood that they would not garner the 50% threshold that they needed. And in Georgia, that necessitates a runoff election. Um, what I'll say about the the partisan politics of runoff elections is, you know, Democrats typically do not fare well in runoff elections because they tend to be lower turnout elections. And so I worked an election in Georgia in 2008 that was also a Senate runoff election and we didn't fare as well. Um, it was a tough race. And, um, and so when you're in a runoff scenario, you're always thinking about who are the voters that we can get to turn out a second time, voters having turned out two weeks prior, three weeks prior to that. So that's a really big challenge and the reason why these elections are low turnout overall. So we knew we were gonna have a challenge when we had a runoff election that was in the middle of December or in, in the middle of the beginning part of January. And so our, I wouldn't say the deck was stacked against us, but it's a massive challenge to get that level of turnout um, in a runoff scenario. Um, when you have a, a highly contested general election. The one other thing I will say is despite that, you know, we turned out more voters in, than any runoff election ever in the state. Um, and I think that's a testament to the enthusiasm that was generated by our organizing. How did you deal with voter fatigue? Because surely that would have been um, very much felt on the doors of going out and speaking to folks saying, hey, you, you need to come out again. And, and in the death of winter as well. I know it doesn't get, how cold does it get in Georgia during your winter? Depends, you know, with what's going on with climate, um, it gets much colder than it ever used to when I was growing up here. Um, but it got it got cold some days. I think we, we get into like the mid forty degrees Fahrenheit over here. So how did you? Uh, but there were days it was certainly colder. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so how voter fatigue? I mean, was it was it prevalent on in the campaign? Well. So two things here. One, there was an unprecedented amount of energy on the ground having just turned the the state blue for Joe Biden. And so I do think we rode a wave of enthusiasm to a degree that was certainly some wind in our sails going into the runoff election because people saw what was possible when they turned out to vote. When you see a slim margin like that, it's uniquely energizing because you know that even if you were you apathetically went to the polls and because people were bothering you to vote and you voted, you're like, wow. I was one of maybe you know 12,000 votes that made a difference. And so we were harnessing kind of this, you know, this this energy and this this um uh voter empowerment that I think helped combat the fatigue a lot. And so I do think that there was um there was that working for us. Um the second thing I'll say is there there were a lot of really there were a lot of groups that have done work in Georgia that had a lot of resources to do voter outreach as well. And being that we were the only race um, in the country at that moment, there was kind of a, an overwhelming surge of every group that had resources trying to reach out to voters. And when you're in the Democratic Party and then there are five or six other groups that, while helpful, can also um, be targeting those same voters. And so there was a lot of phone calls. There was a lot of texts, you know, the traditional like people being like, oh, I voted already and people are still calling me. And, you know, they call me twice a day. And, you know, there, there's a certain level of, 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 uh, of inundation that happens with our voters. But we found that most people were just so excited about the possibility of what could happen that most people kind of said, you know, 
I'm going to turn out and vote. I'm going to bring my friends, my family, et cetera, and volunteer as well. We had, you know, we, we were able to make over 25 million um, attempts to reach voters over the course of our runoff campaign. And just in the final few days before the election, over 1 million um, um, touches, as we'll say, to voters to get them to vote. And so um, we had unprecedented enthusiasm amongst our volunteers as well as our voters. So you talked before about uh, you were able to uh, receive an um, increase in, in, in resources, in particular organisers on the ground. Um, what adjustments did you make from uh, the, the general to the runoff in terms of those resources strategically for your campaign? Yeah. So the one thing that I mentioned um, when I talked about what the general election was like here was that there were not as many organizers on the ground. And in fact, most a lot of the organizing was happening remotely um, because of the pandemic. And, you know, so there wasn't a lot of in-person volunteer muscle memory, so to speak, of volunteering during a pandemic. So one of the unique challenges that we had was that we knew that in order to win this election, we had to have what we call ground game. So we knew that we needed to talk to voters in person. We knew that the virtual, the text, the emails, the the calls wasn't going to be enough. So we made a really strategic decision early on to run a robust in-person program. Now, in the middle of a pandemic, you're like, it gives you, you know, makes your chest tighten a little bit. Um, But we thought very long and hard about how to do so safely um, so that we could run this program in person. And so we scaled up the number of organizers um, nearly exponentially um, and pursued all the necessary COVID safety protocols that we needed to do to do that. But I'd say that's the biggest strategic decision that we had to make early on um, to run uh, the kind of program that was going to turn out the number of voters we needed. Uh, I could talk about this for hours, but I I need to keep on moving. Yes. One thing I'll also add to that is outreach to our communities of color. Um, We put a lot of, we put an unprecedented amount of resources into outreach in communities of color because in Georgia, those were the voters that delivered the victory for Joe Biden. And so that diverse coalition was very important to us. So we didn't just contact them in traditional modes of door knocking or, 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 um, calls and text. We also ran programs that were specific to those communities to go into the local businesses, to go into their places of worship, to go into um, their communities and have events, kind of bring the campaign to them. And we did so in, in pretty substantial ways. And I think that's really important because, you know, we see these, we see how voters of color impact an election. We saw that in the 2020 um, uh, general election. And then, you know, oftentimes we, we start from scratch when we're running a new campaign, like we forget that we forget the what helped us win. And so I was really intentional with my with my leadership team about not taking those voters for granted, because that's that was we knew that was going to be a really important part of the victory. So we 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 leaned in very, um, very hard into outreaching constituent communities. Looking at the results, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it appeared that there was an increase in voter turnout for the both Democratic candidates in those um, rural, what would be notionally Republican counties. Is that right? Is that and that was a, was that a strategic focus for the campaign? 
Yeah, I think one thing that's really important to remember when you're thinking about the, the landscape of Georgia in terms of the, the the key Democratic voters is that they don't, many of them live in Atlanta, Fulton County, which is the county Atlanta's in, and then the Collar Counties, the Gwinnett's, the DeKalb's, the Clayton's, but then there's also a, a, a number of voters that live, it's particularly voters of color that live in rural areas of Georgia. So we saw Southeast Georgia and Southwest Georgia um, places like Savannah, places like Columbus, where they're not in the metro, but those are places that you need to still perform very well and turn out your voters if you are going to essentially, I want to say combat, but in the rural counties that are white, they, they're small, right? But all it takes is, is, is a number of those counties to really overwhelm the the margins that were running up in those key democratic counties fulton county cobb county gwinnett county as we mentioned and so the strategy of anyone running statewide in georgia is always yes win big turn out lots of voters in your metro counties but don't forget about your southwest georgias your southeast georgias where a lot of those black rural voters don't have campaigns focus enough resources and sometimes it's a matter of resources, right? If you're prioritizing, maybe you're leaving those voters on the table, but we knew that it was important. And so we made sure that those voters heard from us um, and and uh, they responded by turning out in record numbers, particularly also um, African-American seniors, which were a huge, um, which were a huge demographic surge for us. Um, and that and collectively helped deliver the victory. When um, I had uh, a good a mutual friend of yours and mine, uh, Katie Parsons, on the show um, when we were previewing the Georgia runoff at the start of – actually, we did it on, um, Chris, on New Year's Eve. Um, we were sort of tossing up the pros and cons of Trump uh, not being on the ticket. Um, the pros being um, it could reduce the turnout of his base um, and the cons being that sort of maybe middle-class moderate Republicans that voted for Biden in the general would potentially come out and feel comfortable voting for the two Republican candidates. Um, and I couldn't – I racked my brain over this. I couldn't settle where this would end up. I, I, and I don't know if, what kind of evidence you have of it, but I would be keen to get your insights in what do you think transpired in the end. Yeah, no problem. So what we – what you – what I, I shared earlier in terms of – um, the voter turnout that we saw in our key uh, Democratic counties in the metro, in Atlanta and Metro Atlanta, coupled with the turnout in rural parts of Georgia, is of our key voters, was one side of the coin. I think the other side of the coin was really that we didn't see um, the level of, of the reason why um, you saw um, us be able to pull out the victory. Um, that was incredibly important. And I think that a lot of this narrative, this disinformation that the Trump campaign um, leaned into, and even him coming to campaign on the eve of the election, talking about himself, like how helpful a surrogate are you? You come to the you come to the state to talk about how the election was stolen from you. Not really helpful to delegitimize the election before you're trying to get your Republican colleagues elected, as it as it turns out. Um, and so I think we did see that a lot of folks said. Why, why am I showing up for an election that's fraudulent? Why am I, you know, people who have been motivated by Trump who are then being told that he wasn't, this election wasn't legitimate, like, you know, that was, that definitely worked against them. Um, I also think that, you know, people wanted to send um, representatives to Washington who understood their challenges, were in touch with 
um, with Georgia Georgia voters. And you saw David Perdue, someone who is, has gotten wealthy off of Georgians and their misfortune. Kelly Leffler, who is insanely rich and just keeps getting richer. I mean, profited on the coronavirus. I mean, come on. And I think you just saw people just wholly reject that and say, what, you know, why, why, why am I sending these folks back to Washington? So I do think you saw some, some voter, um, some uh, depression and voter turnout on their side. But I think our folks were also energized by the opportunities they saw in sending John and, and Raphael Warnock to the Senate. I found the, uh, the Republican strategy with the two Democratic candidates interesting. It seemed that they were going to leave us off alone and target their negative messaging towards uh, Raphael uh, Warnock and trying to paint him as a radical left-wing pastor. And they were even willing out the old um, Jeremiah Wright stuff from 2008. Um, but in the end, going by the votes, Warnock was clearly the stronger of the two candidates. Um, did, they, did the Republicans make a mistake here and go after the wrong person? I think that's definitely one conclusion that you could draw. Um, you know, the, the races were the races were definitely very interesting because sitting at the nexus of like what we call the coordinated campaign, I, I had the privilege of working with both teams. And, you know, what I will say is they both were very strategic about um about their messaging and very disciplined in their messaging. And I think also chose to really run together. And I think that there was value to that. And I think that you could see a different scenario where candidates might say, oh, we want to run our own races or we we're going to I'm going to I'm going to separate myself or, or promote my own brand. But I think one of the smartest things that the campaigns decided to do was essentially be a ticket. And so I do think that when you saw them on stage together, um, when you when you heard them championing one another, I do think it kind of brought this unity message that was just a complete foil to what we saw happening on the other side. Um, I do think that, you know, a lot of the places where you might have seen Raphael Warnock perform better um, or, you know, or it was it was, I think, more of a um, more of a matter of just some of the demographics there maybe being a little stronger and more aligned with like Raphael Warnock's profile or message, but I don't think it was really um, a difference in platform or a difference in policies. I think it was just that, you know, there was a lot of can there was a lot of candidate energy in some of the specific markets that they were able to cultivate and galvanize um, to get to drive up the numbers of support, but they campaigned with one another. And I think that that was really one of the most important parts of this campaign. Um, the long term. And I'll, I'll also just add to say, yeah, yeah, you know, Kelly, Kelly, Le the, all of their attacks were also baseless, right? Well, our attacks were backed by facts and um, and their proven records as elected officials. A lot of what Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue were saying were just baseless attacks and they didn't stick. I mean, you're going to attack the, the pastor of Martin Luther King's like spiritual home. It's like that's. That, and the South, we don't really take kindly to that sort of thing. And there was just no merit to anything she was saying. And I think that people ultimately saw right through it. And I think it did backfire. Looking at the strength of both uh, uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff as, can as candidates, and then how, and I'm going to say this, how shit uh, Leffler and uh, uh, Purdue were, and just the debates it was, and I know that there is sometimes there's no merit in, in democracy, unfortunately. It just sometimes, it just doesn't, sometimes the good guys don't always win. But I just was going to be really pissed off that if they didn't get up. I just thought this, there's such a contrast between these two campaigns that it just would be 
it would not be justice if they didn't get up. So it actually was quite beautiful to actually just sit there and watch the votes get counted on election day and slowly them they're slowly gaining and catching up and then get, both getting over the top was just a, a very very beautiful beautiful thing there's no question in there Jonah. it's just i just wanted to brag and say how happy i was about it um and the good guys won it made me so, feel so much better like as a, as yeah a, as a, it's like democracy prevailed it's like for once having the right candidates with the right message with the right morals with the right intentions toward the voters doing the right organizing in the right communities for once that formula just like worked and it doesn't always work to your point right sometimes you do all the right things and you think you talk to the right people and you think you knocked on the right doors and you're just like well what went wrong and so not everything on campaigns is within your control but to see to see that perfect recipe for people wanting change just prevail over every suppression tactic every smear attack it's just, it's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's poetic. I will say it's, it's just, it's poetic. The, um, is this uh, long-term strategy that's been adopted in Georgia by so many talented people, including your good self, going to become a campaign template for the Democrats in other Southern red states going forward? Do you think, are people talking about this? Are people coming into Georgia and having a look and seeing what you guys did? Yes. Well, I definitely have a lot of conversations with people post-election about what we did in Georgia and, how we can replicate some of the successes across um, the South in particular. And I will say that, you know, nothing is impossible. Um, You know, Georgia took a lot of work um, over many years, over many cycles. There was a lot of um, people, leaders who believed and continued investing election cycle after election cycle and did not give up. And that brought us to this point. And so, you know, any state looking to replicate the work that we did have to really think long term, not think next cycle or just a cycle after that, but like invest in the communities, invest in the staff, invest in the um, the programming that helps you cultivate um, a civic engagement that doesn't just turn out voters, but it makes people, you know, participate in a way that's sustained. And I think that that's a really important distinction between just winning elections and having a sustained infrastructure that you can go back to when it's time for the next fight. And that is my hope for Georgia, that we've we've seen these wins and we will continue sustaining that. And that's my hope for any state. You have to think long term and you have to think about substantial investment. Final question. Can you talk about the historic significance of the election of the first uh, black candidate from the South to the United States Senate and from the home state of John Lewis? Um, And those people of faith would probably like to think that there would have been maybe a watch party in heaven on election night with some of the legends of the civil rights movement in attendance. Um, Just talk about that for for one moment. Well... It's honestly hard to talk about that without really tearing up because I think it just it, it moves me to a place of of just deep gratitude that I've been able to be a part of this work in in, in this way. Um, you know, watching Raphael Warnock on the on the campaign trail, watching John Ossoff on the campaign trail, like watching them really speak to who we are as Georgians speak to our challenges, speak to say the things that candidates have shied away from saying, calling out things that are wrong, calling out, you know, lack of accountability and leadership, like really speaking to our moral core as Georgians, I think just gave me such resolve and hope that 
we have people fighting for us. And for Raphael Warnock to be representing his his home church, his communities where he grew up, where you know he lived in grew up in a, in a housing project um, in your Savannah, and just to see him rise from that to achieve what he's achieved, I think it it, it heartens you to know that that's possible. That's America. That's the American dream. And, you know, he comes from, you know, his ancestors and his mother and those who are closest to him to be able to walk into the voting booth and choose him and send him to the United States Senate. I think it it just means something for all of us and will forever, right? No matter what happens from this point on, like we've proven what's possible and we've proven that this fight, this work to reinforce our democracy, to choose right in moments when it's easiest to just kind of give up, that that work is worth it. And John Lewis, who is a tireless warrior for freedom and and civil rights, always used to to love to play the song Happy by Pharrell. It's his favorite song. He walks out to the song anytime he's speaking. I just imagine him having like the biggest dance party in heaven to that song um, because he truly loved it. And I think that happiness that we all felt that night when those election results were rolling in, um, that elation, um, it just, it will remain with me forever. Um, and I know it'll remain with a lot of people who were involved in this victory forever. So um, it just means a lot. It means more than I can say, honestly. Well, it was a, um, it was a wonderful uh, result and, uh, you know, props to, to yourself and everyone else that um, had put in the effort over the years and in particular over that runoff, you know, congratulations um, for, as uh, social Democrats around the world. We were all watching intently, basically from, you know, sort of early November all the way through to, to, to the, that January runoff. I felt like a long time and then also no time at all. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Um, but we're just, we're, I mean, if we're elated, then I can't describe how, how um, overjoyed a lot of you folks must be in, uh, in Georgia. So hopefully you get a chance to get some rest and also now bask in the glory of what was a, a historic victory. So, uh, Joan A. Wartel, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Um, thank you all for... Uh, sharing in our joy here uh, in the States. Um, This was just a, a great moment for democracy.